Well, some new polling shows a bit of a shift when it comes to how people are feeling about the state of health care in British Columbia and what the biggest challenges are when it comes to health care. The polling done by Research Co. and president of Research Co., Mario Canseco, is joining us now to talk more about those findings. Thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. Great to be here with you. Well, we've certainly been talking a lot about health care. We heard from the health minister this week about ways to improve the system. But you've been asking British Columbians about this. So what did you find as far as how much people think needs to be improved or changed in the system? Well, the numbers are definitely a departure from what we found when we asked British Columbians about health care back in November 2020. Uh, this month, we have 31% who believe there's so much wrong with the healthcare system that we need to completely rebuild it. This is up 20 points from November 2020. And only 13% who believe that everything is going fine and no, no major changes are needed. So it's interesting to watch this develop because what we've seen also over the past year is a significant preoccupation from residents about the shortage of doctors and nurses. Um, if we were to look at our numbers in 2020 or in 2019, it's all over the place. Everybody has a specific beef about healthcare, but now we have half of British Columbians who say that the number one problem that needs to be dealt with is the shortage of doctors and nurses. And interesting, I thought, when you look at it, as far as people responding to this survey based on age, not a huge surprise there, given that the group with bigger concerns is probably a group that is more likely to be using the healthcare system probably more often. Well, what we have here is a generational divide uh, that goes really deeply in two questions. One of them is the negative perceptions about the system. For those age 55 and over, it climbs all the way to 40%. So there's definitely a sense from the older generation, the ones that might be requiring more healthcare than their younger counterparts, to do something about the system. Now, what we see with the younger generation, those aged 18 to 34, is a willingness to abandon the healthcare system as we know it. They're more likely to say that if they had the opportunity, they would pay to access services through a, a separate system, but also that they would be more likely to travel abroad if they needed to take care of their health. So you have this dichotomy in play that is fascinating. The over 55 saying, do something about the system, but don't change it. And the 18 to 34 year old saying, if I have the money, I'm going to access healthcare either privately or in a different country. Did you ask people specifically about incorporating private healthcare options into the current system in, in BC, in Canada? We have looked at that question at the national level, and the appetite is certainly a little bit higher with the 18 to 34 year olds. I think there's, it's a generation that has grown in a way uh, with certain aspects of life being easier. You know, they grew up with rideshare, they grew up with smartphones, they grew up with online shopping. So they're more likely to look at the healthcare system as something that can be addressed through technology and something that can be easier to do if you have a separate option. So this is going to be one thing to watch in the next two or three years. Is the younger generation going to push for a different kind of healthcare system where you can access some services quickly, whereas the older generation is saying, government, you brought us into this, fix it. <laughs> it's interesting, I, the finding that you mentioned, too, of the kind of the younger people responding, saying that they would leave the country or they would go elsewhere traveling to have quicker access. And we've certainly seen... Uh, We've seen examples of that. I know recently uh, Global News spoke with a woman who went to Romania for a surgery. Not only was it faster, but it was a better surgery than the one she would eventually get in B.C. And it kind of this survey is showing this, too, that people are kind of peeling it back and suggesting that we've always just kind of taken for granted that we have this wonderful healthcare system. But there are big problems with it and things that need to be addressed. 
Well, part of it is not knowing exactly how to deal with things. I think we're at a situation now where a lot of people are just going through Google and see what they can do about their health. We have a, a significant shortage of doctors and nurses, which is now the number one issue for half of residents. So you're looking at other options. And we think of the younger generation, the 18 to 34 year olds as somebody who might have some sort of, of injury through sports uh, or, or, you know, they, they need to wait a little bit longer for something related to their knees or their ankles. These are parents as well. And it's very complicated when you look at a situation and they're telling you that your kid needs a medicine that is going to be very costly or that nothing can be done in the next couple of months. So that sense of desperation is not only for the young people, but also for their kids. And when you look at that number as well, the 50% uh, considering the shortage of doctors and nurses, the biggest problem facing our healthcare system right now, I'm I'm guessing you didn't go into this level of detail, but I would be curious if that's people who are reading about it and, and seeing it in the news or and as well as people who are in the system and see it and they see doctors and nurses working so hard and all healthcare professionals working so hard, but get first hand knowledge from people saying, yeah, we're working really hard, but hey, look at the shortage. There should be so many more people here. Well, I think it's a difficulty uh, that has really manifested itself more over the past couple of years. We've always had the stories of people having difficulties accessing a doctor, but to see it uh, increase by 26 points in a year and a half is is certainly eye-catching. You know, it used to be about long waiting times. You know somebody or you're on a list and you need to wait three months to see a specialist or one year to get a surgery. Now it's all about the fact that even if you're not feeling great today, your chances of seeing a doctor that right now are definitely slimmer than they were just a couple of years ago. So this is going beyond the situation related to uh, some more significant uh, surgeries in a way. It's our own healthcare system that is suffering because people are willing to go to the doctor, but they just don't know where to go. Hmm. And like you say, too, that long wait times used to be much higher up on the list of concerns. But even given that, we've been hearing from specialists saying they, too, want an emergency meeting with the health minister, that they are saying people are not getting the access access to specialists and specialty care in a timely fashion. Well, it's absolutely necessary. I mean, uh, our surveys are always a snapshot on time. In, 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 In this particular case, We conducted the survey that we did before the one we did this month in November 2020. We're in the middle of the pandemic. We're waiting for the vaccine information. Everybody's sort of saying, well, you know, we're going to give the healthcare system a little bit of a passing note right now because they're dealing with so much related to the pandemic. Now we're almost out of it. And I think people are expecting something different to happen. And this is the reason why the, the shortage of doctors or nurses is so high. You know, back in November of 2020, you might as well be saying, it's risky to go to the doctor. I don't need to. But now in 2022, a lot of people are trying to do it and they can't. Uh, anything else stick out in your mind as far as uh, I know that that shift in the biggest health concern, the shortage of doctors and nurses, big, a big shift there. Does anything else stick out to, to you looking at this and the answers that you received? There's a significant political component to this, because when we asked this question in 2020, it's right after the B.C. Supreme Court decision about private health care access not being a constitutional right. Back then, we had a majority of B.C. residents saying, we agree with this. I th- we think this makes sense. We need to protect the sanctity of the system. Uh, this year, it's dropped significantly. We only have a 37 percent who believe that the court made the right decision. Almost half, 49 percent, who say that was wrong. So the way to fix the system and to get rid of the calls for a different option where you can actually pay for services, those two issues are connected. Unless the government does something really meaningful and the numbers about the shortage of doctors and nurses comes down, 
the call for a private system is only going to intensify. All right, Mario, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for chatting today, and we'll talk to you again soon. My pleasure, yes, anytime. Right now, though, we're taking a look at some information. This is news out of UBC, and it has to do with some new tools that are hoping to improve care for people who experience stigma attached to substance use. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Colleen Varco, Principal Investigator and Professor Emeritus of Nursing at the University of British Columbia. Colleen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Joe. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you as well. How how big of an issue or, or how concerning is it uh, that we still see stigma attached with people who maybe are, are dealing with substance abuse or use? Oh, it's huge, Joe. And, uh, you know, you've been covering the pressures on the healthcare system extensively. And I think that in light of those pressures and the increasing pressure due to the toxic uh, drug supply, overdose crisis, and and multiple intersecting crises, it is really um, very important that we start trying to pay attention at all levels to stigma and discrimination, particularly substance use stigma, and, you know, it intersects with racism as well. So um, on a day like today of truth and reconciliation, that's particularly important. And can you talk then a bit about these tools and what they look like and and how it's expected they could help with this? Right. Um, Well, we're trying to support organizations and healthcare providers, social service providers to reduce the stigma people experience. And, you know, we have a range of tools. It's not just that healthcare providers or service providers should do better or act, you know, practice with less stigma, but we need the policies and the structures to support them to do that. So we have everything from trying to take stock of where your organization is at. How are you doing with harm reduction or, as we like to think of it, substance use health? How are you doing with those approaches and how are, who feels welcome in your uh, service, your healthcare setting, your emergency department, and who doesn't, and how can we make that better? Because people are often driven away from care. They're fearful of going for care. They expect to be poorly treated. So we're starting with organizations to say, how are you doing? And then helping people have conversations about it, helping them to learn more about what, you know, what people experience, Um, who use substances or even people who don't use substances but expect to be discriminated against. And we take it all the way to how do you evaluate if you're improving care. And when you talk about that as well, is it, I would imagine it's worse if somebody has experienced discrimination or they've experienced racism when trying to access health care or access some kind of treatment and it would be worse or it would be it would be less likely I would think that somebody in that scenario would come back or would try and access it again but then also and you touched on this it's people that that maybe won't ever try and reach out for treatment or health care because they're just from what they've heard and what they've seen they just expect that that level of treatment. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, you know, people are often, um, you know, they go to health for health care because they have pain. And uh, there's just, just a very common um, 
experience to be ex- suspected that you're just drug seeking. And if we could help shift everyone's thinking from the idea of drug seeking to seeking pain relief or seeking help, um, that's really what's going on. So yes, people avoid care. I mean, none of us, I think you said yesterday when you were talking to Dr. McLeod, um, people don't want to be in emergencies. Um, nobody goes there because it's fun. And and so people avoid it even further when they've had bad treatment or they expect bad treatment or they're, um, they're embarrassed about whatever it is that they're doing, whether it's, uh, you know, drinking or using uh, illegal drugs or whatever. So they avoid care at all costs and often end up being very, very sick before they get to any kind of health care. And so who do you think or who would benefit by using these tools or, or bringing on these strategies and these resources into to their environments? Well, mostly we're aiming at health and social service organizations, but I even think the public would be interested. We have, you know, little animations that give you insight into what people's experiences are, video, short videos, a lot of different learning tools. But we're trying to help organizations to say, you know, how are our policies making it very difficult for healthcare providers and service providers to provide non-stigmatizing, non-judgmental care? So just for an example, um, some of the, we worked with um, St. Paul's Hospital, for example, um, and they did some things like partnering with Indigenous organizations to put, to install some Indigenous art in the emergency department that would make people feel maybe more recognized and welcome. So that sounds like a, sounds like an unrelated strategy, but it can be very powerful um, when you enter into a space and rather than being met with signs that say violence will not be tolerated, um, you're met with something that's uh, a bit more welcoming uh, and encouraging of care. You know, I think uh, healthcare providers are, as you well know, under incredible pressure and we're often, you know, setting um, health and social service providers up to get people through as fast as possible um, and sets us up sometimes in a way that we're in a confrontational position or an oppositional position with those people that we're supposed to be serving uh, rather than really trying to reach out with uh, compassionate care. Um, and that's a really interesting example because it's probably something as well that that maybe isn't wasn't thought about in that something like artwork and making the actual physical setting more welcoming could make a huge difference. I, I think I think we tend to think of of the problems as much more difficult and much bigger challenges, but that seems like such a not an easy one, but maybe one that's overlooked a lot. Right, and if you do things in partnership with local communities, uh, often you can find solutions that are not um, expensive. And, you know, we tend to go, you know, we, we get a l- the wrong idea that people who use substances are necessarily violent or whatever, and so we go with more security guards or more bars or whatever, rather than um, looking for other solutions. So, for example, we worked with a primary care setting Um, where there was lots of difficulties in the waiting area, but their solution wasn't more security. Their solution was to provide water, coffee, and have an elder, an Indigenous elder in the waiting room. And it just transformed the the whole atmosphere. So, you know, if we work with local communities and we work with actually people providing the direct services, often they know the solutions 
um, to what to how care can be improved, how services can be improved, rather than us sort of um, rationing things and driving people away from care, which is in the long run very costly and ineffective to our healthcare system. Right. And even something like that, that solution is not uh, one that's going to break the bank. It's not a hugely costly solution to provide water, coffee and to, to make the place more welcoming. Right. But, you know, often our, you know, we operate in such silos and our organizations are so complicated. One of the hospitals that we worked with, the, the staff just tried to make it possible to offer patients water. Uh, and it, it was really, really difficult to get that to happen. Or to give another example, um, you know, we have bylaws, which are really important that people can't smoke or do any kind of um, uh, drugs or drink within uh, within a certain distance of, of hospitals and other public buildings. But then that means that when a person, again, for example, needs to have a cigarette, um, they go away from care. And we've seen it over and over again where people are missed for their, you know, they're in a waiting line and they're missed because they're out having a cigarette. They have to go, you know, blocks away. So I think we have to look not just at, you know, how our service providers and healthcare providers practicing, but also what are our policies and how can we make them more um, accommodating of people's needs. All right. Well, Colleen Varco, interesting toolkit and ideas coming out from this. Thank you so much for joining us today and for talking more about this. Well, thank you for having us. Well, it's probably not a huge surprise to learn that a number of Canadians have taken a financial hit because of inflation, rising costs, and seeing it really hit as far as savings and as far as discretionary spending as well. People putting off things because they just don't have that money any longer. Well, we are joined now by Jennifer McCracken, who is a local BDO licensed insolvency trustee, to talk a little bit more about some of the findings of this latest study. Jennifer, thank you so much for being with us today. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. Uh, when we look at this, again, not a huge surprise that a number of Canadians are seeing those challenges when it comes to daily purchases and things that maybe they hadn't thought of before. But what specifically were you looking for as, as part of this, the annual, the affordability index? We do the affordability index every year, and we are considering how Canadians are reporting that they're feeling. Uh, sorry, Jennifer, I'm going to have to stop you there. Sorry, the phone line is really bad. We've had an issue with our phones uh, this uh, this week for some reason. Um, we're going to try and reconnect with you, if that's okay. That's fine. All Thanks, right. Jill. All right. Let's try and uh, reconnect with Jennifer McCracken. Uh, she is a licensed insolvency trustee with BDO Debt Solutions. So we're talking about this new study, and this is the fifth annual affordability index. It takes a look at things like the affordability, the financial health of Canadians. Uh, it found more than three quarters of Canadians surveyed said that their personal finances have worsened because of inflation. Just more than half, about 54%, said they are living, in fact, paycheck to paycheck, and about 3%, that's three percentage points over 2021. All right, I think we have reconnected with Jennifer McCracken. Jennifer, can you hear us okay? 
I can hear you fine. Thanks. That is much better. Excellent. All right. Now we can hear you. Uh, let's talk a little bit more. You. This was a study I was just mentioning, uh, taking a look at where Canadians are really seeing financial uh, their financial health, I guess, kind of threatened by the high cost of everything. Where is Where are you finding that? Uh, precisely. We're, we're seeing it actually across the country. It's, we know that affordability, really this survey is highlighting it's a national issue. Historically, we saw there was a little bit more polarization in the results where some provinces reported you know, different results, different issues, more, more capacity to save, less debt, etc. What we saw this year is that inflation is actually affecting everybody across the country. Uh, we're seeing that people are struggling just to put food on the table. We actually had more, like about three quarters report that their financial situation were worsened due to inflation. So um, we know that it's affecting Canadians and there has been an impact specifically around just meeting basic costs. And I know before I came on air, we talked about gas prices and that was actually part of the survey results. We found that transportation costs are higher and and more Canadians are reporting it's a struggle to meet transportation needs. And uh, the fix, what we're seeing is that people are now using debt as a means to sort of bridge the gap. So we found a lot of people reporting that they've taken on new debt or existing debt that they had um, has increased. And so there, there really has been a ripple down effect on the finances due to the inflation and rising costs. And how concerning is that, that we're talking about Canadians taking on debt and not for something like buying a new vehicle or maybe even going on a vacation, but we're talking about taking on debt for things that are necessities for day-to-day life? Precisely. And and we know that that's really what Canadians are doing because a lot of, like over 50% reported that they live paycheck to paycheck. And we also know that a lot of Canadians are reporting less savings. The surveys uh, results found that there was a bigger impact to savings. So that is a concern. It speaks to the affordability, their ability to cover their housing costs, the transportation costs, food costs. And this is where, you know, we, we want the index not to be all doom and gloom because we know it is a national issue, but we want to highlight what are the steps that people can take. Know that you're not alone. You're not the only one that's struggling. What are some of the things you can do to make it better? And uh, what are some immediate steps that you can take to resolve the affordability issue? Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because you're right. We don't want to just talk about doom and gloom and and people will know if they're able to make their dollars meet and dollars stretch, whether or not they're in that scenario. So what are some things that Canadians can do? Well, first, I'll talk a bit about debt methods and we can go into budgeting, but specifically around anybody who's listening that is dealing with debt and carrying debt. Um, focus on a plan, build out a plan now of how to pay down debt. Uh, There's the debt avalanche method where you write, you want to write down and say, what is the balance? What's my minimum payment? What is the interest rate? Tackle, you can choose to tackle the highest interest rate debt first. So make your minimum payments, but pay more to that account that has the higher interest rate. The other method is debt snowball. So you think of a snowball rolling down a hill. So you're going to, you're going to pay the small debts off first then tackle the larger debt. So it's unique to everybody. That's why they need to know what the accounts are, what the interest rate is, what's the minimum payment. That's going to help build out the plan to to pay off debt. Uh, The next step will be budgeting. So build in what is the money that's coming in on a monthly basis. Calculate your income. Go through the basic living expenses, factor in the debt payment, and see what's left over. Where can you trim back? I always advise people, look at subscriptions. We all have subscription fatigue as we prescribe to this, that, and the other, and we, we, it gets paid directly to our credit cards. Evaluate where can we reduce the expenses that we have 
um, in the household and make a plan um, on the ones that, you know, that maybe are less essential, like eating out, um, the, the sort of the discretionary expenses, eliminate those as much as possible if you are having a, a struggle with savings or dealing with the debt. Which sounds like like that is a good solution, but that's got to be difficult, I would think, too. If people are, or or is there a reluctance? Do you think to even mm-hmm. kind of admit that and think, oh, I actually have to make some changes? Well, that's actually a really excellent point you make there, because um, like at my firm, we say the first call is the hardest call, right? So it's feeling like you're alone, feeling ashamed and embarrassed. And, and to a certain extent, even just evaluating where you're at, like having a, a, having a look at it and saying, where am I? How am I doing? What's my financial checkup? So that is part of it is that, you know, you really do have to be honest with yourself as to what's going on. And know there's tons of tools out there. You know, there's tools that you can use to track what is you know, doing that assessment of if I pay the minimum amount, how long is it going to take for me to pay off my debt? You're better off knowing that now than waiting five or 10 years and then building out a plan to deal with it. So that is really the first step is having that honest approach and know that you're not alone. Know that you shouldn't feel ashamed or embarrassed about your situation. Uh, There are options and there is information out there for you to, to build out that plan. I would imagine that's kind of the the barrier to get past too as well, because even looking at a credit card statement, while knowing is power and you should know that, looking at perhaps it written there that if you make minimum payments, you will be paying this for 14 years and then you will be out of debt. It just doesn't doesn't make you want to jump in and do it. No, it, it is discouraging. I think that's what you're getting at. And it, it is. And um you know, this is why a lot of times when I meet with individuals, sometimes there's a reluctance to do something formal to deal with debt, whether it's a, an arrangement, a negotiated settlement or a bankruptcy. And that's actually one step I have them take is go onto our website, go to calculate, put in all your debt, put in the interest rates, really think through. Like if, if it says you have to pay, you want to pay your debt in five years and you have to make a payment of $1,500 a month to, to pay off your debt. Now is the time to act on that, right? So it's it is it, it's discouraging, but it actually needs to happen because another thing I see in my practice is people will say, "Geez, I've had this credit card for ten years. I've made the minimum payment. The balance hasn't gone down. I've I've, I've had this debt level for years. I should have done this sooner." So, you know, really being realistic about you can live without debt. You can be debt free. And as the survey found, the savings plan is important. You will need money in retirement. All these things interact. So don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Um, Really deal with the debt. Deal with the situation you're in now. And you're going to be better off in the long run if you do it. Do you get the sense, though, and and from the findings here or this affordability study, and and even just from hearing from people, because we do know that things cost more. Like you mentioned, gas is expensive in BC right now. Gas is in not in all of BC, but in parts of Metro Vancouver right now, gas is sitting at two forty one a liter. Uh, We know groceries are more expensive. How do you kind of deal with that? Even if you have the best plans and you you want to pay down your debt, when everything around you is costing more. And that's the, the, really the issue, right? It's like just the big question, like, what do we do when costs just continually rise? You know, and you can see that, you know, you can go through and see the inflation on things like coffee and cheese. You know, it's just stuff that people really, they're really buying it every every week or every month as part of their household food intake. Um, so that's where, uh, you know, obviously assessing needs versus wants. But when we're talking about necessities, it's having a plan in place about, you know, if it's a food budget, maybe it's cooking in bulk. Maybe it's choosing where you shop, buying in bulk, maybe going with family and, and buying if you 
you have to live in a condo and you don't want to shop at Costco, can you buddy up with somebody and, and find ways to save money uh, by being creative with how you shop? With gas, can you use transportation? Can you do carpooling? Um, you know, just working through, are there different ways that I can get from A to B without having to, to fuel up the car? And um, really, it's, it's just getting creative with being as creative as possible, how you can trim back. And it's unique to everybody and people who are families, people who are single, et cetera. But take that time and see, you know, take those little steps and, um, you know, you may see a change. It could be easier than you think. <laughs> well, that's good. That's good to hear. I found it interesting, too, because we tend to focus so much on how expensive it is living in Metro Vancouver. But this study really shows it right across the country. And in Atlantic Canada, a big percentage of respondents saying that, yes, everything was more expensive. So it's certainly not only affecting one region or one area. Oh, that's true. And one interesting part of the survey, too, was about homeownership. So it was very consistent that around three quarters of respondents in the provinces reported that homeownership is likely out of the, you know, out of the question that they're not going to qualify for a mortgage. So it's, you know, when you sort of think through the motivation, as you say, and, and it can, people can feel discouraged by where they're at, where they're living and the affordability. But it, it is a real issue that um, just that the costs are, it's across the country, it's consistent in, in a lot of uh, the findings on this one. All right. Very interesting findings and good, uh, timely advice. Jennifer McCracken, we'll leave it there. But thank you, as always. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you for having me.